I've not told this story, and I probably shouldn't tell this story because then it makes this thing live on forever. So, but I always tell it when you guys do this, so it just is what it is. Um, when I was uh, in college, like Shane and Shane were a big worship band. Uh, Robbie C. Band was a really big worship band. And then the David Crowder Band was a really big worship band. And so I grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, Oklahoma City is the, the, is the capital of Oklahoma, but Tulsa is like the fun part of the state. And so, yeah. Okay, I guess you guys like Tulsa. And so, um, so we went to a concert and it was Robbie C, Shane and Shane and David Crowder band in Tulsa. And like it was in the middle of David Crowder's set and it, got, it was dark and it was super quiet. And I was like, I love you, David Crowder. David Crowder is my dad. And he like paused and he was like, no, I'm not. And it just went on with the worship set. So when you guys do that, it just always reminds me of that moment. Uh, and so, yeah, there we go. Um, before we get into the word this morning, I wanna, or this evening, I want to do something that I think is really vitally important. Um, a few years ago, I have the benefit of taking a sabbatical. If you don't know what that is, that's uh, oftentimes people in ministry get seasons off where um, they can tend to their own soul, be with their family, rest. Uh, it's a unique thing that um, serving the church allows you to do that like a, not a, a, lot, a lot of other vocations don't allow you to do. And so I was on that sabbatical and I had eight weeks where I, I mean, I, did, I, I slept a lot. I cleaned my garage, went on walks with my wife, played with my kid. I only had one kid at the time. Um, I had less gray hair at the time also because I only had one kid. Um, and all of that to say, one of the things that came out of that season for me is realizing the power of gratitude. Because what gratitude does in you is it actually produces faith. Like if you slow down to say, God, you have done this and I'm grateful for it. It also triggers something inside of you that says, and therefore I can believe you to do more. It's interesting if you read, we, we've talked about Paul a lot this week. We'll talk about him again uh, at, the, at the end of our time tonight. Uh, he starts most of his letters with this sense of gratitude for what God has been doing, particularly through the people that he's writing to, before he begins to ask the Lord to do something more, because there's this sense that gratitude produces a level of faith. Here's why I'm saying that to you. I, I love what God's done here and I want to recognize and I want to be grateful for it, but I also want to believe him for more because the reality is tomorrow morning, a bus or a van or a car is going to take you back down the mountain and you're going to have to go back into reality. And if we don't, if we're not grateful for what God has done, we can easily forget it. And if we easily forget it, we won't have the faith to endure what comes next. And so here's how I want to, here's the particular area that I want to do that. I'm super grateful for the Hume staff. Like this is a super special place. Yeah. I'm grateful that I get to do this with you even though I'm a really small part of your journey. Um, I was gonna say most of you won't see me again, though all of you that see me, that all of you that live in the South Bay may like run into me at Target or Vaughn, so you may see me again. Um, but I'm a really small part of your journey. But who I'm most grateful for are your leaders, your counselors, your, your pastors that have just been a part of this. Yeah. And so here's what I want to give you guys an opportunity to do. Um, if you are a leader, a counselor, a youth pastor, um, youth staff, a lead pastor that came or an executive pastor that came to hang out, whatever your role is, you're here because you wanted to invest in the lives of these kids. Can you guys just stand up for a moment?
Yeah. So here's, here's why that's important. Because for you leaders who just stood up, I know that there are gonna be days that are hard, and I want that sound to resonate in your mind and your heart on those hard days. On those days when you are sitting in your office, or maybe because of the nature of your role, you're bivocational, and so there's no office to be sitting in, and you're feeling like there's no fruit, and it feels like every kid in your youth group is doing exactly what you don't want them to do, I want you to remember that sound. But then students, I also want you to remember this moment and how you honored them. And what you do here, I want you to do down there. And so there may not be nearly a thousand of you in a room shouting out all, all at the same time, clapping for your leaders, but I want you to recognize that just how you recognize that your leaders gave of themselves on this, in this week to make sure that you got closer to Jesus, closer to one another, and maybe even had a safe space to deal with some of the things that you brought in, they're gonna continue to do that work when you get down the mountain. Continue to honor them in the same way. As we jump in tonight, we're gonna be in Daniel chapter nine. As we get there, um, when I was almost 18, my parents decided before I went into my senior year of high school, they wanted to take a family vacation. We didn't do lots of family vacations, and so this was a big deal. And not only was it a family vacation, it was an international trip. My family comes from Ghana, West Africa, and my parents decided that we were gonna spend nearly a month in Ghana seeing family, spending time with family. Uh, it, 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 I mean, I don't know what your best family vacation was, but mine beats yours because uh, it was epic. Um, and so we, we were just there for nearly a month, and it was just this really cool experience. And then as we came back, I have an uncle. And uh, my Uncle Ben is just a, a weird amalgamation of things. Like he's really, really smart. And at the same time, he's probably the uncle that you wouldn't leave with the kids by himself, right? Like, like he's just, he's like, like he's brilliant, but he also is kind of mad scientist brilliant, so he like might blow up the garage. And so when I got back from the trip, like most people were like, let me see pictures, what was your favorite part, things like that. And he sat me down and said, I expect more of you than just having warm memories of the trip. I want you to internalize what you experienced and what you need to bring back to make your life different now that you're here. He's like, you've got cousins, you've got family members who don't have the same opportunities that you have had. You've seen what their world looks like. What are you gonna take back from that experience to bring here to make you more of the person that you're supposed to be? I was like, oh, you just kind of ruined vacation for me, Uncle Ben. But I said, yeah, you're, some of you are like, Uncle Ben like the rice? Yes, Uncle Ben like the rice. Um, some of you are hearing that and why I'm saying that to you is my, I, I'm raising the expectation for you. That when you co go back down the mountain, it is not just that you had a really cool week, but what is it that you're going to take from this week back down the mountain to be filtered into your life to continue to grow in who Christ would want you to be? So with that in mind, here's our main idea. Resilient faith is built in private devotion to the Lord. So all week we've been talking about components of resilient faith. And I told you last night that resilient faith is, uh, is rested upon, is centered upon the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that is the central element. There is no such thing as resilient faith if you don't have that. But what's the work that you do in the lab to make that faith strong? I think it's the private devotion, the private dedication, the private commitment to the Lord that most people won't see. So we'll jump in in Daniel chapter nine, starting in verse one, and it says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, a Mede by birth, 
who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the, to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And if you remember back to our first uh, session together, we talked about Daniel verses 1 and 2, and we asked the question, how do we get here? And we even alluded to Jeremiah 25 through 27, where because of the way that Judah was living, that Jeremiah predicted, you're going to go into exile, and you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And so in the first year of Darius, and so if you remember where we've been, we started with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was king for a long time. In fact, he was uh, the, kind of the central authority figure of chapters 1 through 4. And then when we got to chapter 5, we got to see Belshazzar. Belshazzar was only in chapter 5 because by the end of chapter 5, he lost his light. And then Darius becomes king from the Medes. And so now he's in the third regime of leadership, the third session, and he's reading and praying. And I just think, man, what a, what a crazy setting. Like if you're thinking through this, what he's realizing is that this is going to be a 70-year period of being in captivity. Uh, some people read that as to say he recognized that they were in year 70. Others would say that he was reading that, recognizing that, 70, that year 70 was when this was going to end. But either way, this has been going on for a while. And isn't it a strange thing to go before, like to be motivated to pray more when you recognize that you've been in this for a long time and maybe there's some more time to go or you've been in it for nearly 70 years, nearly an entire lifetime that you're going back to praying when thus far all of your praying hadn't sped up the clock. I mean, isn't it a weighty thing to think that in this setting that he has watched now three different kings, he's moved into the second kingdom, and it doesn't feel like much has changed for him, and yet his impulse is to go pray. In fact, if we think about the setting even more, um, if you read Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 are these visions that Daniel is having about these series of kingdoms that are going to rise up in power. And eventually the Lord is going to topple those kingdoms. But before it gets there, it's going to be difficult so much so that he's almost terrified of what he's seeing. Isn't it interesting that his impulse when he's facing something that's difficult is to go quietly to the Lord and pray? Uh, the other thing that grabs my attention is that he does, uh, he, he's careful to let you understand the time markers in the first year of the reign of King Darius. Well, if we jump back to chapter six, it feels like we're pretty early in the reign of King Darius. And so either these are the praise, prayers that he was praying that got him thrown into a lion's den, or these are prayers around the time of the lion's den, maybe even afterwards. And if praying like this before got you in trouble, it feels like it's weird to go to the Lord in prayer when it doesn't seem like it's working, when it's producing terrifying visions, and maybe it's getting you in trouble enough that people are trying to take your life. It's interesting to me how committed Daniel is in prayer. Because the reality is that oftentimes when we pray, it doesn't as quickly change the circumstances outside of us as we would like them to. Man, I wish there are times that I would go into uh, my place where I pray, whether that's in my house or at my job or even in my car, not with my eyes closed because that wouldn't be safe. Um, and as I'm praying, I wish that when I opened my eyes or got out of that place, walked out, that everything that I was praying for would magically be different. Very rarely does that happen. 
But I can tell you that oftentimes, particularly when I'm consistently committed to prayer, that what the Lord will do is not necessarily change what's outside of me, but will change what's happening in me. Sometimes what the Lord does is when I'm going into a difficult personal situation or interpersonal relationship, that when I go in and pray, that it doesn't necessarily change the posture or the attitude of the person that I'm going to talk to. Oftentimes they are still mad, they're still frustrated, they still don't like what I did or don't like how I did it. But when I walk into the situation, the way that I see them, the way that I respond to them has been changed because I've been before the Lord. And oftentimes what he points out to me is not, here's how you're going to win the argument. It's here's how you have felt similar before and you can show them mercy. There are times where when I, like, I'm 41, but I still think I've got young man's disease. I think everything needs to happen faster than what it does. And so when I'm praying to the Lord about changing things or doing something or, or something pertaining to the pace in which our church is moving, that oftentimes, like, I'm frustrated because I'm like, Lord, why are you taking so long? I prayed for 30 seconds. Why didn't it happen? And often what he begins to show me is there are things that I see that you haven't seen yet or there are things in you that need to mature that before I put you in that position, you're not gonna be able to handle it. I'm, I'm working in you before I start working on that. It's shocking to me that with all the ways that it would be easy for Daniel to say, I'm not going to pray, that he says that even though it's not working as fast as I want it to, even if it might get me in trouble, even if it might begin to show me some things that I don't know how to handle, that I am privately committed to going before the Lord. I said it to you yesterday, and I'll say it again. It is really difficult to win public battles that you haven't supported with private devotion. It's going to be really hard to be the type of person at your school or your job or on your teams or in your social circle. Um, it's going to be hard to be that person in front of other people when you haven't been cultivating being that person privately before the Lord. And it's so powerful to me that when we begin, begin to see Daniel speaking the most in his own voice, we see him before the Lord in prayer, working out things before the Lord. And so maybe this is why there's so much resilient faith in him in chapters one through six, is because it's all been supported by what we don't get to see very often, these quiet moments of going before the Lord and developing a private devotion that supports the public battles that he's going to have to fight. And then... Let's hear what he prays. Starting in verse four, it says this. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him, have not, and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instruction that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. 
The next thing that's really interesting for me, uh, the fact that he prays is, is, is gripping for me, but then what he prays. His prayer seems to have two notes that he keeps playing over and over again. This is how great God is. And this is how we have not recognized that rightly. Like, this is Daniel, right? Like, uh, like we, it was funny, uh, we, we had our uh, Tuesday session and, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I've got a question about Daniel. Um, does Daniel ever sin? And I was like, well, I'm sure he does, he's human. But in chapters one through eight thus far, we've not seen it. Like we've not seen him in one moment seem to waver in his faith. We've not seen him say bad about anybody. We haven't like, like oh, let's just be real. If somebody's trying to throw me into a lion's den, I'm not going quietly. I'm swinging them things. I can't fight, but if it's between me and the lions and me and some guy trying to throw me in, I can't take the lion. I think I could take you. And so like we don't, we don't see him acting that way. We don't see him like whispering in the corners to Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Man, I, I really can't stand Ariok. <laughs> I wish the Lord would do something about him. Like, like, like we never see any sin in him, and yet when he prays, he begins to pray in this way where he's like owning the sin of others and including himself in that. Like, I love the way that he prays because he starts not looking at himself, not looking at how broken and wretched he is, though he will get to how his people have failed, but he starts by looking at the goodness and the grandeur and the glory of God. Like, this almost sounds like worship lyrics, the way that he's praying. The way that he's lifting up God and talking about his goodness, talking about what he deserves, talking about how he's been faithful. Like the way that he prays about God has this sense of this is not duty, this is delight, this is not something that I have to do because somebody told me I have to do, but this is a relationship that I'm glad to be in and when I get around you, there's something in me that's stirred to appreciation and gratitude for you. And then recognizing that, then moves to recognizing himself and says, and yet me, our people, we have not been faithful. Just to give you a scope of how serious he thinks it is, he says, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away. Like he just, every term that you can think of, we've done that. Like he's owning sin in a way that just isn't common in our day and age. Like, so many times, particularly when famous people um, do something wrong, the way that they talk about it is this kind of backpedaling. There were mistakes that were made. I'm not gonna name any of those mistakes. You have read about them, we don't have to talk about it. And if what I did in some way offended you, like that's just such a weird lack of ownership and when you hear Daniel praying about the sin of himself and his people, it's not, hey, Lord, there's some mistakes that were made, and if somehow you were offended by the thing that I did, I apologize for that. He's like, we, we did wrong. We sinned. Our actions were wicked. You are king, and yet we rebelled against your reign, that we turned away from you. Later on, he would say, we have not been loyal. Like, he lays out all these clear terms. This is the confession of what our sin looks like, and he's not afraid to bring it to God. And then he just continues to detail, because of what we've done, I've done, this is what we deserve. We deserve public shame. We deserve to be in the space that we're in, but this is what comes from you, compassion and forgiveness. Part of me asks the question, 
I wonder, I wonder if the reason we never see him react to Nebuchadnezzar or any of Nebuchadnezzar's men or Belshazzar or Darius in a way that would seem to make sense for somebody who was being oppressed by a crazy authority figure is because of how well he saw his God and himself. I wonder if he was able to give mercy to others because of the mercy that he recognized that he had received from God. I, I, I get it. It's weird to say he thought of himself receiving mercy from God if he was in captivity for 70 years, but the fact that he could look at God and say, hey, we deserve this, and yet you've been faithful and compassionate and forgiving to, towards us, that you've rescued us and been kind to us, even, in the, even though our, our circumstance isn't what we want, you've been near to us in a unique way. I wonder if that's where the mercy for others flows from. I wonder that's why he's willing to take responsibility for others, where he's willing to step in the gap and say, put the pressure on me, that he's willing to pray and, and hope that things will change in, for others. I wonder if it comes from, because he sees his God rightly and sees himself rightly, he has eyes to see others differently. And my prayer for us is that we would be formed shockingly in the same way. I pray that our eyes would never lose the focus of how great our God is, what he deserves, how the type of loyalty and appreciation and gratitude and devotion that he deserves, but that we'd also see ourselves rightly. Can I tell you this weird thing that happens the longer you walk with Jesus? The longer you walk with him, the more you become cognizant of areas that you're weak. Like I would read at times in the New Testament when Paul would say things about himself, about his weakness, I'd be like, come on, bro. Like you're also the dude that like when they threw you in jail, you're like to live as Christ. Well, we're gonna kill you to die as gain. I'm like, like, I can't compete with that. And you're talking about that you're weak and that you're struggling. Right, what do you struggle with? You didn't pray 17 times a day. But I think there's times where you realize the the intent of your heart that other people can't see. Can I just confess to you that even this week, um, there are moments over and over again where after the Lord has done something awesome amongst you guys that I've had to go back to the corner and sit down and wrestle with my own pride as if I had something to do with what God was doing. Because you begin to recognize your weakness before the Lord more intimately when you see him more rightly but then it also gives you a mercy for other people. So what do we do with that? If resilient faith is built in private devotion to the Lord, then what does that type of resilient faith look like? So here's the thing that I wanna share with you as you get ready to go down the mountain. You're at a unique point in your journey. You're not the same person that you were on Monday. You have, um, John, Jonathan Edwards would call revival the intensification and the acceleration of the work of the Spirit. In five days, the amount of change that some of you have experienced has been an intensified, accelerated work of the Spirit. You are in a new place. But what I want to tell you is what brought you here will keep you here. The things that you've been involving in your life in this week, those things that brought you to this point of seeing God in a new way, of, of experiencing community in a new way, of feeling like there's a level of life in you that you didn't know was possible, 
because of the mercy of Jesus. What brought you to this place this week is going to keep you in this place as you go back down the mountain. And so I just want to walk through a few of the qualities that you've gained this week that I just want you to keep vital in your life. So the first two that I think go together are prayer and worship. Daniel gives us this really specific example of prayer, but I I think even in his prayer is this, this sense of worshipfulness towards God. I, I, I don't know where you are. Uh, maybe before this week, uh, if I said, hey, you should pray, maybe you're, you're, you'd look at me like, I don't, I don't even know what that is. Or maybe there are times of prayer in your life that are like praying before meals or praying um, in a setting when youth group when everybody else is praying, but there's not a, a personal devotion. And so here's what I want to just challenge you to do. Wherever you're at, just add five minutes. And so if you've been praying zero minutes a day, pray for five. If you've been praying for an hour a day, a day pray for 65. Now, if you pray 24 hours a day, you're out of luck. I, you can't add anything. Just keep doing what you're doing. But I don't think that any of us are in that category. But if you are, please come take the face mic from me, and, and please don't let me speak to you ever again. But what I'll tell you is prayer is this beautiful opportunity to have a conversation with God. So let's, let's talk about that because... Um, everybody has that person in their life that has only one-sided conversations. And if you're like, I don't have a person in my life like that, that would mean you're that person. (laughs) It's never fun to have a one-sided conversation. It's never fun to sit there and listen to somebody walk through out their stream of consciousness out loud. And so when you pray, don't have a one-sided conversation with God. When you pray, there's both an element of speaking and listening. Um, The word helps you do that. And so when you pray, pray the scriptures. If you're like, man, I don't even know where to start. Uh, There's a portion of your Bible called the Psalms. And the Psalms are are written to be poetic. They're written to be emotive. But they are also oftentimes prayers. And they are prayers for every type of season of life. There are psalms that are great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. And there are also psalms that are saying things like, how long, O Lord? It doesn't feel like this is changing. I need you to help me understand. And then listen. Sometimes that listening will be continuing to read. And as you continue to read, the Lord will begin to speak in some specific ways to what you've been praying. Or other times you'll be listening and the Lord will begin to bring things to mind that you've heard from other people or in your community. Or sometimes there'll be a sense or impression of what the Lord's doing. But make this a conversation, not a one-sided monologue. And then worship. I wish every single one of us could have our own personal fragrant, fragrant worship following us around throughout the day. Like, that would be awesome. Like, I'm not sure how that would work if you were, like, sitting next to somebody who had their own personal fragrant worship. Like, I don't know if the songs would sync up. I don't know how that would work. But, like, like it would be nice to have that. Like, when you are having that moment when you feel like you need a little bit of pep in your step, and then just out of nowhere that, like, Tommy would walk up and be like, Yahweh. And then, like, you guys would like, right, it would be, it would be crazy, right? Like, it would, be, it would be awesome if that could happen. But, but the Lord doesn't give us that. 
But worship isn't built on the team that's in front of you. Worship is built on the God that rests all around you. And while they are gifted and a gift to us, the reality is that you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, can stop and recognize the goodness of the Lord. What if you begin to build that as a rhythm in your life? Maybe it's walking between classes. And as you walk between classes, you look for ways that you can see the goodness of God. I mean, I'll just, I'll be honest with you. I, I, did, I did not like high school. Not because, like, I, like, most of the time people say that, like, I got picked on in high school. I actually kind of picked on people in high school. I feel bad about that. Um, I, I didn't like high school because I'm like, just let me get to college where I can, like, learn the stuff that I want to learn. This is a waste of my time. But I'll tell you that I grew up going to one of the best high schools in the area. I grew up having teachers that really cared about me. I grew up having teammates and friends um, that, I, that I was building bonds that were going to help me through that season. And what if I was able to slow down and thank the Lord for his goodness in those things? What if you were able to do the same? I mean, how would it change your relationship with your parents if instead of your, your internal dialogue being all the things that they haven't given you, them being about the things that they have given you? What would worship look like? if you begin to carve it out in your life, not just in a public space where an awesome band was leaving you, but in the private spaces where nobody else may know, but the Lord is giving you the encouragement to see his goodness. So those are the first two. I mean, there's, only, there's only three more. Um, second set, repentance and confession. I think the reason that Dan, what Daniel's doing is markedly different than what we see in our world is because there's a difference from, between recognition and repentance. You can recognize that you did something wrong and not turn a different way from it. But what repentance is, is to recognize that you have sinned against God and to say that I no longer want to continue to do that and I want to turn a different direction from those actions, from that heart motivation. Repentance is much deeper than saying, mm, I recognize that there's a problem here. Some of you this week for the first time entered into doing that. Some of you, maybe not for the first time, but maybe the first time in a long time, you entered into saying, okay, Lord, I recognize that what I'm doing is sin, that I've done wrong, that I've acted wickedly, that I've rebelled, that I've turned away, turned away from you, and now I want to turn back to you. I'm repenting. But I also think a, a, a specific way of doing that is confession. Certainly to the Lord, but one of the things I would also encourage you to is to build a, a group of people around you where you can confess sin to them. I have people in my life that when I struggle, I confess sin to them. One of my best friends is a guy named Brian Smith. His birthday is today. And I confess sin to Brian, but the, the nature of our relationship is not only that I confess sin to Brian, but I, I oftentimes call Brian when the ingredients for sin are all on the table next to each other and say, hey, help me not mix those things together. Because I have, some, I have people in my life that I can call and say, help me that I don't fall into this. This You don't have to do this alone. And confession can be one of those ways. And again, like, like not every, like you don't have to stand up on the stage and be like, hey, Glad we had a great time at Hume. Let me tell you about all the things I've done wrong in my life. 
But I do think that there's a group of people that are this close enough circle that you walk tightly with enough, that, that know where you struggle, know where you're weak, that are not, they're not just building information against you, but they're coming alongside you to fight when, when that temptation comes. And that is part of how you keep growing uh, from where you are today. Here's the final one. Trusting God's word. You've got to spend a lot of time in God's word this week, whether that's in settings like this, whether that's in your cabin times, in your, your quiet times during the day, memorizing scripture. Like you've got to spend a lot of time in God's word. Please don't just let that be a camp thing. Please don't just let that be, hey, for these few days, I was saturated with God's word and it began to transform my life. It began to make sense to me. It began to motivate me to be more like what he would call me to be in the scriptures. It was a, both a window into how he works and a mirror for where I'm at. But now that I'm back down the mountain, I'm gonna close it up and it's gonna, it's gonna end up somewhere under my bed. Let it be something that you hold deeply in your heart. Maybe for the first time this week you memorized scripture and you didn't even know that you could do that and you walked away being able to say, man, I can pull this verse out of my heart when I need it. And you may not need it right now. It may be 16 years from now and the thing that you learned here at camp is the thing that the Lord brings up to remind you of his goodness. Don't leave that up here. Walk in his word. And then I wanna end with this. When we understand the mercy God has had for us, it changes how we see others. I think there are things that you're gonna need to do to continue to build your private devotion as you walk with the Lord, but I also think the way that you see the world around you is different. I love our theme because I think our theme is preparing you for the reality of the world that you live in, but I oftentimes think that when you hear the word hostile, your reaction is like an episode of 24. You get on the radio and say, Jack, I need you to take down the hostiles. You guys don't know what 24 is. That, I, that, was, a, that was a lost reference. Um, it was a show back in the, like the mid-2000s. It made everybody feel anxious. Jack Bauer diffused bombs every, every day. It was great. Anyways, um, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for the other 41-year-old in the room that said that. Um, <laughs> But the reality is that the, the show was about any time there was an enemy to the nation of the United States, they were often called a hostile, and the goal was to take out the hostiles. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are not called to take out the hostiles. You're called to show them the mercy of Jesus. A pastor in New York, his name is Rich Viotas, he would say it this way, it's a really weird evangelism strategy to despise the people that God has called you to go after. We don't get to operate in a way where we are trying to remove or harm or avoid the hostiles. We're actually called to run near them. And when we see the mercy that God's given to us, we offer it to them. It's not a Mike thought. It's actually an Apostle Paul thought. Titus chapter 3, let's say it this way. Paul's writing to a young man. His name's Titus. Um, he sends Titus to a place called Crete. The way that Crete is described in chapter one of that letter, um, one of the people from Crete, one of their poets would say that they're lazy, evil beasts, and gluttons. I don't know what that exactly meant in that culture, but I know in our culture, if I walked up to anybody and said, hey, you're lazy, you're an evil beast, and you're a glutton, I'm probably walking away with a black eye. <laughs> and so these are not compliments. 
This is speaking to the brokenness of that place that Titus is being sent. And, and Paul's doing a lot of work of saying, hey, if we can build right belief in them, we can build right behavior in them. But then he says in chapter three some things that don't full, fully feel like they make sense. Starting in verse one, he would say this, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentle, gentleness to all people. And I wrestle with that because when you read that, what he's saying is, hey, you don't act like they act. In fact, you should be showing this level of gentleness to all people. And so like I try to get smart and get a Bible software and research that word all. And here's the problem. It means all. It means that annoying sibling that you really just want to punch in the side of the neck. It means... It means the kid at school who's doing everything they can to ridicule you. It means the guy or the girl that broke your heart and slandered you and gossiped about you. It means all people. And it's almost as if when Paul says that, he thinks that everybody else recognizes, Paul feels like you're talking crazy. And so he explains himself in verse three. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. Hear what he's saying to them. He's saying, you used to be like them. There's a brokenness in your relationship with God. There's a brokenness in your relationship with other people. You were enslaved to your passions. You were acting like a beast. You couldn't control yourself. You couldn't get along with other people. You hated them. They hated you. You were just like them. And so how did you become different? Here's what he says. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing and regeneration, or the, the, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with him with hope of eternal life. And so here's what he's saying. You were just like them, and then God appeared with his kindness. Not because you were doing the right things, because you were just like them. But instead, because he had a deep mercy for you, and he sent his spirit. And he says that his spirit washed you that you might be regenerated and renewed. Like, that, that language is important. Uh, my mother-in-law, I, I love her. She is the greatest cleaner of house that I have ever met in my life. Like when she's there, like I can drop a towel on the floor and before it hits the ground, she's washed it twice and folded it. Like she's just gifted like that. But as good as she is as making things clean, she can, they're still the same thing they once were. It's an old towel that now smells like it's bounced fresh, but it's not a brand new towel. But what the Spirit is doing is not just taking an old thing and making it clean, it's washing an old thing and making it a completely different thing. This is what Mikey said to you yesterday, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old thing is gone and a new thing has come. That that's what the Spirit has done in you. That's why you don't look like you used to look. That's why you don't act like you used to act. But that's not because you did that. That's because the mercy of God through the Spirit did that. And that was applied because you trusted Jesus. Some of you last night for the first time stood up and trusted Jesus. And he would say that you hold on to this for hope of eternal life. But then he would finish by saying this. This saying is trustworthy. Remember when you read that, that means highlight, circle, underline, put stars around it. 
I want you to insist on these things so that those that have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Hear what Paul's saying. Because the mercy of God's been given, because the Spirit has made you new, because you've trusted Jesus and that's been applied to your heart, that's not just for you to to have to yourself, but it's also the motivation for the way that you will work and serve others. So campers, when you have received the mercy of God, it gives you the ability to see the world around you differently. And as you are privately devoted to the Lord with resilient faith, praying, worshiping, repenting, confessing, trusting God's word, you're also looking in the world around you and say, these are not just hostiles. They are eligible for God's mercy. And may you be faithful to show it to them. Let's pray. And so Jesus, I thank you. And if I could be the Uncle Mike version of Uncle Ben for these students, I just want to challenge them. What are they going to take from what you've done in their hearts this week back down to their normal everyday lives to continue to live out what you're calling them to become? Would they not leave the beauty of spending time with you up here? Would they not believe the beauty of being immersed in your word? Would they not believe the beauty of having a a faithful community to be a part of where they can um, not just repent of their sin on their own, but have people that know them, see them, love them, and fight alongside them? Lord, would you help them to take all of that back down the mountain? Lord, would you also not, not let them leave the mercy that they've received here? But instead, would you stir them to give it to others, to show others the way that you, by your great mercy and kindness, have poured the Spirit out on them because of their trust in Jesus and made them new and given them life? And would they offer that to all people? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.